Thank you very much, Peter, for such a generous introduction. It's a great pleasure for me to be back in beautiful Brisbane and at your prestigious university, um, now after the work of Lloyd Davis, led by Peter Holbrook, a World Centre for Shakespeare Scholarship. It's a real honour to speak in honour of the important UQ Shakespearean, Lloyd Davis. I heard him lecture once and was immediately and unforgettably, I can see him in my mind's eye, impressed by the intelligence and commitment of what he said. And I was also impressed by his easy, gracious manner, and it's my privilege to salute him today. This lecture seeks to present a genuinely alternative vision of Shakespeare, Englishness, and modernity from the annals of England's second city, Birmingham. Today, George Dawson, who lived from 1821 to 76, is almost entirely forgotten, but his statue stood at the center, at the civic heart of Birmingham, till 1920, sorry, till 1951. And there it is. This, in fact, was the second such statue, the first having been rejected by the people of the city who loved him as insufficiently lively, not enough like Dawson. But who was George Dawson? One contemporary pictures him as follows. How clearly, how vividly he stands out in memory, the mass of iron-gray hair heavily streaked with white, nearly covering his ears, quite covering his broad, low forehead, bushy eyebrows nearly straight, and beneath them dark brown eyes that twinkled and flashed and blazed and melted. The nose straight, or nearly so, the mouth partly hidden by a straggling beard. Firm, but not so firm that it could not scorn or quiver with emotion. The face was lined and seamed, the face of a man who had known many sorrows, who had carried his own burden of care and the burden of others also. His voice, when he spoke to you, was full and deep and rather husky. The voice of a man who had struggled and suffered who'd known disappointment and defeat in the service of great causes and in the pursuit of noble ideals. There was a note of scorn in it at times, a note of pity in it always. The man himself was of middle height, broad and sturdy, slow in the movements of the body, swift in the movements of the head. And lastly, one of the little things, almost always a velvet coat, or at least a velvet waistcoat, with a necktie that was any color but white. In short, a man thoroughly unclerical, unprofessional, unusual, altogether unlike ordinary men. If you saw him in a crowd, you'd have marked him out. If you heard him speak, you'd have watched him and waited for him to speak again. Such was George Dawson in the later years of his life. But he was a young man when he came to Birmingham, and he came with the fire and freshness of youth. Dawson was controversial. He never altogether lost his fire and freshness, but not long after he came to Birmingham in the late 1840s, he was perhaps the most hated man in England, minister of a church which he himself called the Church of the Doubters, friend to exiled European insurrectionists like the Hungarian Kossuth, Kossuth and the Italian Mazzini, friend also to the memory of Oliver Cromwell, Dawson comprehensively and courageously reinvented religion and canonical culture for new times as a vocation for radically insurgent activism and solidarity 
both at home and abroad. He championed workers' rights, recreation, and education. He brought the latest art and ideas to Birmingham. He even brought, brought that Hungarian revolutionary Kossa to the city. And literally hundreds of thousands turned out to see the Magyar revolutionary in a city center that was festooned for the purpose with the Hungarian trickle law. He was notorious here in Australia, a scion of the Blythe family who had come over from Adelaide around 1860, who had gone over to Birmingham and from Adelaide in around 1860, expressed his surprise that there was not more anti-Dawson talk in Birmingham. He said such feeling was much stronger with them in Adelaide. Still, by the time of his death, Dawson had won over Birmingham and seemingly the world. At the unveiling of the first statue, it was announced solemnly that the gathering that day was not merely a town's gathering, not merely a Birmingham meeting. The name of George Dawson was famous, and his friends abounded far down in the south, beneath the bright beams of the Southern Cross, and far away amid the golden homes of the setting sun on the Pacific coast. So let's consider the replacement statue, the work of F.J. Williamson, and the likeness the people accepted more closely. Dawson, you can probably see Shakespeare's face above Dawson there. Dawson is on his feet, speaking to the people of Birmingham, not serenely seated in his shrine, as, as is Albert in Kensington Gardens. I'm sure many of you have seen that. The almost innumerable figures on the Albert Memorial are intended by their multiplicity to represent all of culture. There are so many of them. They represent culture as such. And I should say right away that I admire the way that, the, that Albert and his memorial linked power and authority to a relatively disinterested promotion of all culture. But the Dawson statue is, monument is different. The Dawson monument deliberately forges and presents a very particular and progressive Birmingham vision of culture. The featured medallions, Shakespeare again, you can see his face in this picture too, Cromwell, Carlyle, and Bunyan express an alternative Englishness now lost. Cromwell, at the civic heart of Birmingham, well into the 20th century, stood a memorial to a modern man who was seemingly inspired, at least in part, by an historic regicide. Though I should also say here that the always thoroughly unpredictable Dawson also admired Victoria and Albert, and especially Elizabeth I, that most illustrious, I'm quoting him, of English monarchs, that greatest, bravest, pluckiest, quaintest, and queerest king they'd ever had, King Elizabeth. Still, Cromwell, you wouldn't get away with it now. You really wouldn't get away with it now. The old Dawson Monument gives us a man haloed and inspired by four-cornered inspiration. One, Bunyan, reformed religion. Two, Cromwell, leading to revolution. Three, Carlyle, who's intensely politically, culturally, and in his own heterodox way, spiritually engaged thought was partly inspired by Cromwell. Four, Shakespeare, who is different in as much that in Dawson's thought and teaching, it's Shakespeare's drama that presents, actually presents, a richly specific model for the renovated, specifically individualistic, mode of collective life towards which Dawson felt all the three other sources of light and life are pointing. Shakespeare unfolds what Dawson wanted the world to be and what he labored to turn it into. In Dawson's life, 
mind and political activity, Shakespearean drama is infused with Bunyan's reforming zeal, but it modifies and softens that zeal into a passionately driven but more humanist version of liberalism. For Dawson, Shakespearean drama is illuminated by Carlyle's agonized speculations about the past and present, but at the same time, Shakespeare's drama answers and resolves the questions that Carlyle asked of his age, Dawson's age. For Dawson, the lively pluralism of Shakespeare's characterization vouchsafes a more, much more fulfilled vision of existence on the other side of routine political dispensations, such as Oliver Cromwell vaulted than did the actual Cromwellian interregnum. Thanks to Shakespeare, nonconformist earnestness and drive propelled Dawson and Birmingham entirely beyond Puritanism and into a new kind of future, a future that's been almost completely forgotten. But there's a bit more to say about the monument. Its four luminaries also stood for a vision of the unity of culture, or more straightforwardly, life. Life! the fiery and young and fresh Dawson insisted, should be a manifestation of one spirit, and that should be the result of the highest style of thinking. He spoke again and again, vociferously against departments and sequestered specialism, despising any division of experience into religious life, political life, academic life, etc. Shakespeare, Carlyle, Bunyan, Cromwell, letters, poetry, religion, politics, facets and faces for Dawson of the one life in which they inhere, which we individually all live together. Dawson would fundamentally have opposed the climate of splintering specialism in our modern universities. And it was his conviction, faith even, that everything connects in life and can only be justified by that standard which afforded art and literature its inalienable vocation for politics. And since there's just so much life in Shakespeare, Shakespeare became an important agency in Dawson's Birmingham for enlarging Birmingham culture. And this all had to be proclaimed directly to the people. That's why Dawson's monument also memorialized him as a man speaking in the main square to all the city. It memorialized Birmingham culture as an opening up and sharing of this one life with everybody. To give everything to everybody was Dawson's express objective. He did teach, but not in a university with an admissions requirement. He taught a literature class at the Birmingham and Midlands Institute founded in 1854, before any university in Birmingham, for, quote, the diffusion and advancement of science, literature, and art amongst all classes. He pioneered education for women. He spoke at the People's Hall, called for a People's College. He was opposed to what we call dumbing down, not afflicted, quote, that's in quotes, with what in Birmingham Dickens called the coxcomical idea of writing down to the popular intelligence. Dawson's speaking statue also memorialized his ab absolute conviction that anything can be said to anyone, whatever her or his class or educational background. At the Mechanics Institute in Manchester, he spoke of Faustus, Marlowe's, Faust, Goethe's, and Festus, which was a 
a poem by Baileys, uh, who was a so-called spasmodic poet, a new, a really new poem. And Dawson insisted that the deepest mode of moving men and women is to deal with the deepest subjects. He refused to talk to them about mechanical engineering, and he was a runaway success. This lost one central Birmingham monument to Dawson also memorialized him as a man speaking to the city or a person, not a monarch, not a mortal god like Albert in his shrine, not a priest, not a professor set apart. I have never been presented with an honorary degree, he said, and I have never been made a knight. Honours in the common sense I have never coveted, and the world has done me the credit of thinking I did not want them. <laughs> he made no pretensions to the title reverend. There were some things which he thought could be said to men and women useful to be said, and they thought he was able to say them, and that was all. He was no priest, he was no dignitary of the church. He was not reverend, but reverent. The Dawson Monument, unlike Albert's, actively but unpretentiously addressed anyone who happened to look at it, soliciting their individual participation, yours, mine, in the public life we make together, inspired by other greater makers of our culture, or great makers of our culture, Cromwell, Carlyle, Bunyan, Shakespeare. It was a monument which stood, as Dawson did, for amateur thinking at its most ambitious, the creative, collaborative improvisation of a culture, not artificially and apart from life, but always holistically involved in, remember it's in the center of the city, responsible to and for it. There is no wealth but life, as Ruskin said, and Ruskin wanted it to be a common wealth, but he only conceived that it could become so in the rarefied authoritarian and pastoral counterculture that was his Guild of St. George. Dawson did everything in his power to bring that new commonwealth to life in modern industrial Birmingham. In Emma, first published in 1816, Jane Austen put the following words into the mouth of Mrs. Elton. They came from Birmingham, which is not a place to promise much, you know, Mr. Weston. One has not great hopes from Birmingham. <laughs> I always say there is something direful in the very sound. But inside 50 years, Dawson was able to speak of Birmingham as the chief center of civilization, the chief town of democracy, the town from which liberty radiates to all the world. The minister of Cars Lane Chapel, the reforming evangelical theologian R.W. Dale, founded Mansfield College in Oxford, whose life and ministry was inspired by Dawson, said in a more streetwise idiom that Birmingham was no mean city. During the 1870s and early 1880s, it acquired the international reputation of being, quote unquote, the best governed city in the world. Municipal reformers, this is a quote too, looked to Birmingham as the eyes of the faithful are turned to Mecca. It was, this is a quote, a powerhouse of moral and material energies. Nothing was impossible. Dale said, if we are true to each other and true to the town, we may do deeds as great as were done by Pisa, by Florence, by Venice in their triumphant days. This newly invented, new minted city 
was, quote, an achievement of the creative imagination. It was the first modern metropolis. Quote, there was no successful precedent to which to turn. By the 1880s, we read, the characteristic features of the Birmingham Civic Doctrine had become widely accepted in England, and it would come to influence the, the world, reaching so far as you will recall Australia. It was above all Dawson's achievement, as many sources attest. According to E.P. Hancock, the creator of the municipal doctrine, the prophet of the new movement, sorry, that was E.P. Hennock, this is re-recorded. Um, the creator of the municipal doctrine, the prophet of the new movement, was George Dawson. And Joseph Chamberlain, Birmingham's great reforming mayor of 1873 to 6, who has since eclipsed Dawson in the historical record, himself admitted, it is a great thing to say of a man that he has influenced the life of a great town. And it is true, and we know it, that if this great town has its special characteristics, its distinguishing virtues, these characteristics and virtues are chiefly due to the teachings of George Dawson. Carlyle called him Brummagam Dawson, and there was indeed a sense in which Dawson was Birmingham. If he's remembered at all today, it's for his so-called civic gospel. But what was that? I've begun to define it with respect to the monument as the widest and most committed cultivation of individual and collective life. I'm quoting, to him a city meant something besides the policeman and the scavenger. It had larger and higher functions than to maintain public order and to provide for the public health. According to Tristram Hunt, one-time Labour MP, now director of the Victoria and Albert Museum, Dawson described the city as the new corpus, drawing on the thought of the German romantics. In a speech typically taken as the touchstone of his civic gospel, Dawson said at the opening of Birmingham's Corporation Library that this new library announced to the world a conviction that a town like this exists for moral and intellectual purposes. It was a proclamation that a great community like this is not to be looked upon as a fortuitous concourse of human atoms or as a miserable knot of vipers struggling in a pot, each aiming to get his head above the other in the fierce struggle of competition. Not by bread alone was his scriptural rubric. A city must have its parks as well as its prisons, its art gallery as well as its asylum, its books and its libraries as well as its baths and its wash houses, its schools as well as its sewers. It must think of beauty and dignity, no less than of order and of health. For Dawson, civic beauty was completely integral to social welfare, not a, an extra, not icing on the cake, an indicator of the health and value of our common life. He wanted a beauty society for Birmingham, but one which sounds very different from what might have been its more decadent 1890s version. My views may sound like a romance, but to me their accomplishment is a possibility and I hope to achieve it before I die. We could soon form a society of men devoted to one object, of men whose desire it is to make the clown town clean, orderly, pure in air, healthy, lovely, to fill it with objects that can lift people by degrees from glory to glory, to fill people with a taste for the beautiful, until at last one can go down the streets with pleasure, and Birmingham men can say, with the passion of the Jews of old, I will go round Jerusalem and tell the towers thereof. I will stand on the bulwarks and look at the beauty of the city.
Dawson spoke thus on the beauty of the buildings of the new children's hospital in 1862, as, as it is today. With regard to the building which they had opened, he was glad that the committee of the children's hospital understood and imitated the works of God. He was delighted that there was in this town one committee wise enough to understand that a little beauty costs a little money, but gives great joy. That building was a great work, and the sick child had been none the worse for letting his little eyes rest upon the pleasant figures in the stained glass windows or the beautiful forms that the architects had given to be gazed upon. It was substantially as a result of this civic gospel that the journalist and art critic Alfred St. Johnston was able to write in 1887, the Birmingham of, of today is perhaps the most artistic town in the nation. Literally central to the life of this most artistic city was Birmingham's revolutionary Shakespeare library. Indeed, Dawson addressed passers-by in his lively attitude under medallions of Shakespeare, Bunyan, Carlyle and Cromwell, right in front of the world's ever, first ever such library, which he had helped to found and for which his civic gospel had provided the enabling vision. Its doors were open, in theory at least, to all the people of the city. When they weren't, the people of the city wrote to the papers and asked for them to be opened again. And the people of the city owned it, and indeed, they still own it holding in excess of 40,000 volumes, including a first folio, in 93 languages, 15,000 playbills, 2,000 musical scores, and so on. It is today surely one of the most remarkably democratic great cultural collections in the world. But Dawson's library is now completely uncurated, shut up in the stacks, shameful testimony to the loss of the civic gospel and an increasing intention to give everything to everybody which characterized Dawson's progressive construal of modern culture as truly a commonwealth to be shared. When 1864 and the tercentenary of Shakespeare's death were approaching, Dawson and Birmingham decided they didn't want a statue of Shakespeare, certain that, quote, if the gentle poet could himself appear amongst them, that he would wish for no nobler monuments than that of being enshrined in the memories and hearts of the hard-working people of this town and the feeling that the conceptions of his mind and his noble expressions were clearing and illuminating the path of the hard-working artisan, that the leaves of his divine works were being turned over by the hardy hands of our own forge men, would be greater pleasure to Shakespeare than any sculptured marble or star-pointing pyramid. It's difficult to overestimate the importance of the now-forgotten Birmingham Shakespeare Memorial Library which they founded instead. To Birmingham belongs the credit of having reared the noblest monument to the memory of England's greatest poet, as one local historian put it. The largest and most varied collection of Shakespeare's works and the English and foreign literature illustrating them which has ever yet been made and the greatest literary memorial which any author has ever yet received. Confirmation of the centrality of the Shakespeare Library to the civic gospel comes in the form of architect and subscriber J.H., not Joseph, Chamberlain's arresting avowal that he should like the Shakespeare idea to grow in the same proportion as the accumulation of their Shakespeare property. 
Chamberlain would ultimately design that, the splendid Shakespeare Memorial Room, which housed the library, which quickly outgrew it, according to his firm conviction that our Shakespeare Library ought to be the very best room in town, not accepting the council chamber of the new municipal buildings. Birmingham was awarded its civic charter in 1838. It was a, a village, really, um, in Shakespeare's time. But it needed George Dawson to give it its distinctive identity and mission. J.H. Chamberlain would, could conceive of its Shakespeare Library superseding the very symbol and centre of local government, the, you know, the seat of local government itself, because Dawson had persuaded men like Chamberlain that literature mattered. Businessmen, he said, Dawson this is, were but the chessmen on the board, the mere pawns moved by the great thinkers of any age. His commitment to root and branch social renovation did not exclude devotion to a 300-year-old poet, since, as he explained, those of them who were considered most radical and most devoted to today and tomorrow were usually also the most devoted to yesterday. But what was the Shakespeare idea upon which 19th-century Birmingham was rebuilt? Give me life, as Falstaff says. More life is what Dawson wanted, and he insisted he who holds the cup to Shakespeare's fount comes home full to the brim with the water of life. I say it very solemnly, the very water of life. And so the Birmingham Shakespeare Memorial Library flung its doors open, and it has to be said, from the perspective of its democratic inclusiveness, the foundation of degree courses in English in Oxford in 1894, then Cambridge in 1912, as well as the endowment of chairs in the new discipline in Oxford in 1904 and again in 1912 in Cambridge, looks a bit like a regrettable narrowing, one which over the past hundred or so years has had the effect of withdrawing Shakespeare and English into the possession of an educated elite. In 1849, Dawson offered evidence before the parliamentary committee then scoping out the possibilities for public libraries, saying that, the higher class of poetry was very much read by the working people. Shakespeare is often known by heart, almost. And Dickens concurred, declaring, I believe there are in Birmingham at this moment many working men infinitely better versed in Shakespeare and in Milton than your average of fine gentlemen. When the Central Lending Library was opened, Dawson denounced the prejudice against working men reading literature as old patronizing twaddle of the last generation. That day was gone, he said. The building of this library would put an end to all such twaddle for the future. And if that pronouncement now seems regrettably premature, consider these. The time of private ownership has nearly come to an end. The day would come when a man would be ashamed to shut up a picture by Raphael or a statue by any great master in his private house. The gifts of genius should be like sunshine, open to all, for all, to be reached by all, and ultimately to be understood and enjoyed by all. The great democratic sunrise which Dawson envisaged has yet to arrive, but Dawson and the founders of the Birmingham Shakespeare Memorial Library certainly did what they could to bring it on. In an early lecture on the collection, Dawson's co-founder, Samuel Timmins, sometimes called Shakespeare Timmins, emphasized just as much as the world-class complement of early folios and quartos 
a series of keys, this is his phrase, which open all the rest to general readers, to any ordinary intelligent reader. Lexicons, concordances, the chief librarian, Mr. Mullins, groundbreaking, comprehensive catalogue of all Shakespearean literature. The lists of occupations of readers given in the general annual reports for the Birmingham reference libraries suggest that all sorts of people did indeed use it. The record for 1872, for instance, includes hairdressers, electroplaters, grocers, japaners and enamelers, gun makers, steel toy makers, and one pearl worker. It was natural that Birmingham should quickly become the birthplace of the National Education League. Dawson said at its first meeting on the 12th of October 1869, we all wish to lay the foundation of a national education system. It must be laid with great simplicity and great breadth. The movement for open education, represented by the foundation of the Birmingham Shakespeare Memorial Library, combined this commitment to breadth with an equally intense commitment to depth. It wasn't just, as Dawson said, that the highest truths are cognizable by all. Even more importantly, the lesson of Shakespeare's supreme characterization is, in Dawson's phrase, that every man and woman is a great original fact. Every man is a great original fact. Such was the great pearl which the solitary pearl worker might have discovered in the reading room of the Birmingham Shakespeare Memorial Library in 1872, and thereby been inducted into the progressive culture of a modern city for which it was the first all-generating principle. Every man and woman is a great original fact. This was the Shakespeare idea. This, the water of life. Civic gospel. One of his great attributes, I think, is the honesty and directness with which Dawson faces up to the challenges of contemporary culture. And I think they're still with us today, many of them, as that phrasing will suggest. And not the least among which is the question of what to do with all the passion and energy of religion in an increasingly rationalist, scientific and secular age. Dawson was a great preacher. One contemporary recalls running into Robert Martineau, who was mayor of Birmingham in 1846, after hearing Dawson preach for the first time. I can hear him now exclaiming, Oh, Will, this is the preaching I have longed for all my life. Literature was the road down which brought Dawson brought religion into the world, and his unconventional hymn book, which is in the Birmingham Library, includes texts by Schiller, in presumably Dawson's own translation, Wordsworth and Carlyle. Dawson, which Dawson got his congregation singing. Dawson wanted Shakespeare open on a lectern in all places of worship, predicting that empty church, this is him, empty churches would begin to fill. Strong benches would groan beneath the weight of attentive hearers. Sleepers would be unfrequent, and the clergyman would cease to be looked upon as a pleasant anod or unpleasant anodyne. Bardolatry has long been a term of intellectual abuse in Shakespeare studies. Ben Jonson professed to admire Shakespeare this side of idolatry. But such careful piety seems quaintly outmoded in our own more secular age. George Bernard Shaw coined the term bardolatry to castigate that shameless evasion of the political problems of contemporary life which often dresses itself up as a love of Shakespeare. But as we will see, for Dawson, Shakespeare offered a way of finding the world which conventional religion too often evaded. 
Shakespeare also offered for Dawson a future for religion in the modern industrial world, without which Dawson was convinced we couldn't live. He quotes Carlyle, himself quoting a German thinker, if men have lost belief in a god, their only resource against a blind no-god of necessity and mechanism that held them like a hideous world steam engine would be, with or without hope, revolt. They could, as Navalis says, by a simultaneous universal act of suicide, depart out of the world steam engine and end, if not in victory, yet at least in invincibility, an unsubduable protest that such world steam engine was a failure and a stupidity. Now that is talking straight. How then are we to avoid such mass despairing death? In an age like this, when the fountain, I'm quoting, when the foundation of old faiths was shaken, when the works of their fathers tottered and crumbled and fell around them, when in politics the fight became bitter, when in theology the ground which should be covered by religion, binding man and man together, became too often only the field of conflict. In these days, when in their social life many terrible problems press for solution, when even in their own immediate and friendly circle, great difficulties sometimes occurred, Shakespeare, according to Dawson and his Birmingham friends, was the way forward. As Emerson suggested, he wrote the text for modern life. We know that for humanity there is now a worldwide religion, Dawson announced. The religion not of the Greek or Jew, the rich or the poor or the sage, but the religion for man, the religion of human nature. And Shakespeare showed what form this might take, for, quote, there was something higher and nobler in William Shakespeare than his dramatic merits. In Birmingham, quote, they claimed for him a higher morality than had perhaps ever been claimed before. A satirical poster, from the, which does quote D Dawson word for word, from the archive of the Library of, the, of Birmingham, indicates how far Dawson was willing to go in this direction. I won't read it all out, but you can see this is George Dawson on the Bible on the left, and on Shakespeare on the right. And printed in on the, on the Bible is Dawson's drawing to the conclusion that therefore they did not believe anything because it was in the scriptures, not just because it was in the scriptures. Whereas the satirist finds his range of that against Dawson on Shakespeare, and the crucial thing there is he was always right. So I suppose it was meant to be pasted up in Birmingham to mock Dawson, but in fact it sets off that inimitably witty but still conscientious facetiousness whereby Dawson encourages his, think, his hearers to think and be changed. Dawson prefers Shakespeare's liberal fundamentalism to dogmatic biblical fundamentalism. For Emerson, Shakespeare was insufficiently religious. The world still wants its poet-priest. This was because, as Dawson phrased it, there is nothing of the priest about him, Shakespeare. No conscious attempt to lift man from where he is to where he ought to be. But for Dawson, Shakespeare's realism is precisely what made him religiously serviceable for new times. I look upon him as planned with one great intention, he proclaimed, that in him should be wrought out what, in deference to my clerical friends, I will call the lay duty of mankind. Shakespeare revealed religious responsibility to life as it is actually lived. Perhaps in this, Dawson once again took a bearing from Carlyle. 
who saw Shakespeare as, as, quote, a man justly related to all things and men, a good man, a prophet indeed in his way, of an insight analogous to the prophetic, though he took it up in another strain. Carlyle even saw Shakespeare as the priest, quote, of a true Catholicism, the universal church of the future and of all times. This universal church of the latter-day Saint Shakespeare becomes comprehensible, I think, if we see in it the broad church of modern liberalism, from which Carlyle ultimately recoiled, but to which Dawson always remained actively devoted. Dawson's interest in Shakespearean morality dates back to the philosophical essays he penned as a young man of between 18 and 20. In his last annual lecture to the Birmingham, year, in the year of his death, to the Birmingham Our Shakespeare Club, of which he was life president, Dawson presented reading Shakespeare as a course in tolerance, the watching of everything that was going on as the wise man watched it, with large, loving, tolerant eyes, led to toleration becoming a temper instead of a principle. That's an interesting formulation. Dawson rejoiced to see the growth of toleration on the part of men towards one another, and amongst the causes that had made that larger spirit of today more a temper of men's mind, minds than a principle of their politics, he counted the increased study of Shakespeare. The radical Dawson, always committed to the liberal cause, found a spirit of tolerance in Shakespeare that transcended tolerance as a predicate and principle of one, his particular party. He saw Shakespeare as portending a higher, richer, and more varied form of social solidarity that could reach beyond party politics. This was his specifically Shakespearean civic gospel. Hear, hear, the Birmingham men said in response. It was in Manchester on Shakespeare's birthday in 1846 that a 25-year-old Dawson first announced the religious potential he described in The Bard. Music, the drama, sculpture, and poetry are objective forms in which God exhibits some of his ideas, he scandalously proposed. There is no, infidel there is no infidelity of the intellect. The intellect cannot be unfaithful, he explicitly says. Shakespeare is a revelation. Such a view claimed an immensely exciting seriousness for the plays as a portent of individual and collective salvation. Upwards of 800 persons were present, I'm quoting, including a fair proportion of ladies and a very large number of young Manchester. The religious seriousness which, with which Dawson invested Shakespeare compelled an extraordinary openness beyond Victorian or other canons of politeness. A mutilated Shakespeare, a Shakespeare made moral according to the morality of tattlers and tea drinkers, Dawson crowled, we abhor and despise. Nearly 20 years later, in a special and extraordinary sermon given in his own church in Edward Street to mark Shakespeare's birthday during the centenary year of 1864, Dawson unfolded more fully what he understood as Shakespeare's revelation. His biblical text, this is the full text is only exists in manuscript. His biblical text was part of the 28th verse of Acts 17. As certain also of your own poets have said. This was an acknowledgement, Dawson proposed, that God had given to the poet the deepest insight into his relations with man. A lesson to a certain class of religious people who wish to ignore all other methods of culture beyond that derived from purely doctrinal teaching. 
it admitted, quote, the insufficiency of the New Testament to answer all the requirements of human life and the human heart. It admitted that it was, quote, insufficient for many of the purposes of culture. All who have any true poetry within them, announced Dawson, must, to his congregation, must have felt with fitting reverence how cold and passionless are the pages of the New Testament so far as the glories of God's great world are concerned. Sometimes a ray of glory lights up the page when the man of sorrows takes the lily for a text, discourses upon the sparrow's fall, or walks with his disciples through the golden fields, ripening for the harvest under a Syrian sun. Still, the men who wrote as if their lives had been passed within the cold walls of a convent cell, where the glories of the natural world are almost never seen, had a high and noble work to do, to rebuke the sins and crimes of the old world and bring the people back to God. The other work of seeing God and the ultimate in its, his great creation has been left for other hands. Equally important is the yawning absence of erotic love in the New Testament. It simply has, quote, nothing to say about, quote, that universal passion, the love of men and women, the matrimonial state, and what Dawson tactfully nominates a score of other matters most interesting to all. <laughs> Dawson admits it gives us, quote, the marriage at Cana and the glorious turning of water into wine as consecrating these relations of ordinary life. But he insists in a tellingly practical phrase that it has no directions in detail. Scripture, in short, has to be supplemented. He's serious in order to be really serviceable to life. The office of religion and the church is not to make life dreary and to shut out the pleasures of intellect or of sense, Dawson insists. If the church is to be one great prison house, would God have made our lives and the outer world so gloriously beautiful? This Shakespearean enlargement of scripture he recommends would seem to entail sexual emancipation as part and parcel of that other work of seeing God in his great creation. Indeed, Dawson, as he speaks, his sermon more or less enacts this verbally. Recall that he says this in his own church. Carry me to Egypt, I would see the Nile. Straight away in that wondrous poem of Shakespeare's, it comes before me. Cleopatra, in all her luscious, sinful beauty, her pomp and splendor, and her perfume. There's no denying the rapture there, and yet note the word sinful. It's not that Dawson wants an absolute, uncritical endorsement of whatever the world is. He wants something more dialectical, an interplay between Shakespeare and Scripture. You talk of the divine re remedy, he says to his audit auditors in combative mode, but it is a divine remedy for an earthly disease, and until you know the disease, you can't apply the remedy. You say, we must exhibit the remedy. True, very true, but the remedy has been exhibited for the last 1,800 years, and how much of the disease remains uncured? It is little in general that preachers know about that disease, which they profess to cure. His sermon becomes more urgent, personal, and arresting when he goes on to say, not long ago I went into an elegant sanctuary where a sweet, curled darling was swelling forth lofty periods, discoursing most eloquent music, wherein he attempted to make his congregation believe that they were all human angels, so good, so innocent, so near to God, no faults, of course, no badness about them. Ah, <laughs> my brother, thought I. Your preaching won't do for me. I am no angel. 
I know that all too well. I'm just a great, coarse, sinful, sensual sort of man. Anything but an angel. So I left that dainty divine and I turned into an adjoining Bethel where a second preacher was thumping ancient dust out of a pulpit cushion and telling his hearers that they were neither more nor less than devils from the crown of the head to the sole of their feet. No good at all, but wounds and bruises, putrefying. Ah, oh, my good brother, said I, I'm no devil. I've mourned over sin, I've tried to conquer it. I've been grieved when sin prevails in the world. I've rejoiced when the good have been strong. All too seldom, but still in some weak, erring speech, I've striven to teach men right. I have loved and I've been loved. No, my brother, I'm no devil. And so I left him, still thumping the ancient dust. His teaching would not do for me. We are neither angels nor devils. We are something like Muhammad's coffin, midway between heaven and earth. Much good in us, much bad. There was never a man so righteous that you couldn't find some speck of evil on him. Never one so bad that by searching you couldn't come to some bright spot, some stray drop of sweetness. And so, when you bring your divine remedy, you must know how to employ it. And it was for this reason in his Shakespeare sermon that Dawson turned to Shakespeare. A second, supplementary, yet altogether indispensable scripture. A book of life, and one which is truly useful to life. But Shakespeare isn't proper to be read, not proper, he imagines his congregation objecting. Why, if you are good, what harm can he do you? To the pure, all things are pure. You can't pass up and down the streets of Birmingham without hearing foul and filthy language. You shrink from it, but it won't hurt you unless you're already diseased. There are certain poisons, certain diseases which cannot touch me. There's nothing in me that has any affinity with them. I can walk right through them unharmed. So would you through what you are pleased to call those improper expressions, if only your heart was pure and good. This great noble book which Shakespeare has given us is of the earth, earthy. It has stains on it which we will not attempt to hide. Here and there, there is a drop from an overfull wine cup which has fallen upon it. Here and there faults belonging to the times in which he lived. But he describes human nature. What I detect in this is a powerfully yearning honesty, a religious reorientation and turning back towards the world. I also observe the extraordinary existential gain involved in reading Shakespeare with such engaged religious seriousness. Dawson very beautifully conceives the dialectic between Scripture and Shakespeare as follows. One sets forth a divine remedy, the other this earthly disease to which the remedy is to be applied. One heavenly, the other earthly, like the celestial and the terrestrial globes. One with its glorious constellations and shining stars, the other with all its roughnesses and blemishes, its rude mountains and deserts and tangled paths, which do yet show from the heavens their dew and from the stars their light, the two worlds ever giving and receiving. It's an extraordinary renovation, a second homecoming for gospel truth, a one in which for all that Dawson ultimately assists, insists on their essential reciprocity, you'll notice the earthly disease, the landscape of it, steadily and unmistakably becoming the more realized, beautiful and glistening of the two. We have very slowly learned to be thankful for God's great gift to our native land, concludes Dawson. 
as if after his, after his rather unbridled fluency, he's now gingerly selecting every word, the gift of this Shakespeare. I suggest we should see Dawson as a representative man here, more honest and more sensitive than most, stumbling into the new light and reality of modern life, but without crassly, superficially, superficially rejecting his historical inheritance. Outside the church, he says, there is the great work of life to be accomplished. And according to him, Shakespeare is, quote, a guide who shall lead us safely through the intricacies of the city. Dawson, in short, defines a new, now forgotten religious vocation to, quote, mix with the great world of men and women which William Shakespeare has formed. This is the context for his fundamental Shakespearean truth that every man or woman is a great original fact. And to get a better, more richly specific idea of what this means critically, politically, and in religious terms, I want to turn now to Dawson's treatment of one character, Ophelia. Dawson at first found her to be a misogynistic caricature, bearing out a general Anglo-Saxon prejudice, whereby, quote, women are interesting in proportion to their neutrality, whereas in the glorious days of France, wit and intellect were the charm of the Dame de Salon. When he cries out, fancy Ophelia in middle-aged, I am sorry for her, but glad that she died. We're plainly in the days before the establishment of English as a respectable academic discipline, though to my mind Dawson's questionable directness here is at least partly refreshing. He begins to sympathise with the character and to see her as something more than just erased by patriarchy. When anticipating Freud, he recognises in the lewd rush of talk and song that is released when she goes mad a testimony to painful, long-term sexual repression. As long as St. George keeps the saddle, he says, the dragon's kept under. But suppose St. George is out of the saddle, then the dragon may leap up. Turning on his audience, he rushes to defend Ophelia against any lurking disapproval. This is his lecturing at this point, not preaching. It is, however, said that it was highly improper that she should know these things. But this is talking idly, for we must all know many more wicked things than we do and a thousand and one reasons might be given why Ophelia should know the songs that she sang in her madness. How did she come to know such songs? Ah, how do people know such things? Would everyone in this assembly like me to know, like me to know that you know the things that you know? <laughs> this poor girl, you get a sense of him as a speaker, this poor girl was by nature amorous. I don't find anything unnatural in it. There are many things permissible in secret only become shameful when uttered. There are indecencies that are only indecencies in the ear. They may be of the earth, earthy, but the earth is a very good thing, not to be despised. So if Dawson spoke up for Ophelia's repressed sexuality, he also trembled with her grief. In, in what he called a weekday sermon from Shakespeare, he even preached on the theme of Ophelia's flowers in Birmingham taking as his text the only text, as though it were a verse from Scripture, there's a daisy, I would give some violets, but they withered all when my father died. In Hamlet, of course. The pure poetic suggestiveness of this itself strikes a blow against dogma.